This podcast is brought to you by the Los Angeles Inner Group of Overeaters Anonymous. Please visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three podcast feeds of over 200 sound files of individual speakers as well as events such as retreats and workshops. You'll also find order forms for ordering CDs of many of these speakers through the San Fernando Valley Inner Group of OA. Finally, we have a donation button where you can contribute to keeping this valuable service continuing for yourself and others. Again, our website is www.oalaig.org. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Wendy. <laughs> Hi, I'm Wendy. I'm a bulimic compulsive overeater. Hi, Wendy. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I was at the kitchen sink this morning and saying, you know, this is the first time I'm not nervous speaking at a meeting, and then it's 3 o'clock this afternoon. I got really nervous. <laughs> so, uh, and then the... Uh, had a fight with my posse. Those are my two friends, my best friends. They they come with me everywhere. My sponsor Tony and and Christian and uh, <laughs> they picked me up late and I was really nervous that I wouldn't get her on time. But you know I said a prayer which I always do is like you know it's God. God's in charge. God's in charge. God's in charge. And and if I'm supposed to get there on time, I will. And there you have it. And, Tony and I will probably talk later. <laughs> or never again, whatever. Okay, so um, I just have to say, you know, um, welcome to the newcomers, and, you know, I'm a miracle. I, I, I was bulimic for 30-something years. I started when I was 14, and um, that I'm even, like, have, I'm almost coming up on five years, and I came into program in 1982. I got abstinent right away and it was really hard and then things got good and I got a boyfriend and it didn't work out and I went to the food and it happened twice. And each time that I went out, I um, left and I left for a while and it was really hard to get back. But I always knew when I was ready to get abstinent that this was the place to come to. So that I'm almost five years abstinent from bulimia is a miracle and I really it has nothing to do with me. I think God just took pity on me and finally said, oh my God, Come on, let's help you. So that's what happened. And, and I, I had really damaged my body from all that time of vomiting. And I, I damaged um, the valve in my stomach, and I had to have surgery. And because when I was done, I couldn't stop throwing up, and I was throwing up blood and all kinds of things. So, you know, that was the surgery. And the doctor said to me, you know, you're never going to be able to throw up again. And I thought, well, I didn't tell you I was bulimic. And, uh, and I was like, he said, well, and I didn't. And he said, well, um, that's kind of what happens with the surgery. And I went, well, isn't this a blessing? This is God's blessing for me. Um, so that was what started my recovery for, for real this time. And uh, just to tell you what it was like, you know, I, I come from, um, I'm the youngest. I have two sisters. My mom and dad were a small family. My grandmother lived with us until I was, mm, I think, 16. And um, my mom was anorexic, although I didn't know it because I didn't know anything about bulimia and anorexia until I came into these rooms. And I was bulimic during a time when there was no known disease for it, and I knew that I, something was really wrong. Um, you know, I was a really tough little kid. I mean, you know, really, I, I was tough and I was outspoken, but really, I think I just came in to a different kind of consciousness than the rest of my family. I saw things, I witnessed things, 
I had an ability to kind of discern some things, and I could tell when my parents were lying to me, and, you know, I grew up in the 50s. And, uh, you know, I said stuff, and nobody else said anything. And, you know, when my mom was very sick, she died a couple of years ago, and, um, you know, my, my oldest sister, like, spent time, a lot of time in the, in the household, and she would say to me, like, how did you know that when you were a kid? And I said, how did you not know it? So it, it was just like I just had a different consciousness. I feel like, I, I feel like I'm like a monk. I came in as a kind of a monk, and this lifetime, uh, I, I would be really happy, like living in a cave and meditating. I love to meditate. Step 11 is my favorite step. And, and um, I think this lifetime, God said, well, you know, I want you to be with me, but I want you to be in the world. And, and that is the really hardest thing for me. I would say that was really the core issue of, of my eating, was that I just did not know how to deal with the world. When I was really young, like in elementary school, I mean, I was really social, and I was friends with everybody. I was friends with the bad people. I was friends with the good people. And when I was in third grade, my teacher would say to me when it was time for lunch and recess, you know, would you, would you like, play with this girl because nobody wants to play with her and I would kind of take her in and I took care of people and stuff and um, I don't know what happened when I hit puberty I gained like 40 pounds sort of like overnight um, and I suddenly didn't know how to deal with relationships and guys and my friends all were like really popular and I was everybody's friend I was everybody's friend everybody's best friend and uh, when I was around 12, my, sis- my two sisters were overweight. I didn't come in, like, as a compulsive overeater. I just didn't. I was kind of normal. I, I was kind of weird with my food, but I was normal. It was like, if you put something in front of me and I didn't like it, I wouldn't eat it. That's it. And, you know, we were taught really good manners. And when we were at my cousin's or my aunt's house and they served us lunch, and if I didn't like it, I slipped it under the table to my sister who would eat anything and she would eat for me so that I didn't have to say I don't like this and um, you know my mother was she had a problem with my sister the middle sister because she she was overweight and she's really concerned about us and so she put us all on diets and again she's anorexic so I, I didn't know that she had an issue with food but I really think she was trying to get us in on you know, her deal. And, and I remember growing up, and I, my mother was gorgeous. She was thin and beautiful, and people loved her. She was really, she had a really great, outgoing personality. And um, I, I always used to think, like, she would eat a few bites, and then she'd go, I'm full, and I'd go, wow, like, how do you do that? That's, like, amazing. And I didn't know she was anorexic. It didn't show, it didn't show, up, until, um, it didn't show up in her body until she, was, she turned 80. When she turned 80 and I saw her, um, she weighed like 73 pounds and everybody was talking about her and really concerned about her. And I, I was telling my family since the time I came into the program that, that there was something wrong with her and they would not talk about it. They thought I was crazy. They always think I'm crazy. You know, Wendy's the weird one, whatever. So it's just kind of how it went. And she died of the disease, a very painful death, I have to say. She, you know, anorexics, their heart... Their heart gets smaller, and she had a stroke, and she had to have a pacemaker put in. And I, I was the only one in the family who would talk to her because I was in recovery. And we'd have really amazing conversations. You know, Mom, you've got to eat. Like, 
you know, and don't listen. My father was just like, everybody doesn't know how to handle anorexics, and they really don't know how to handle anybody that has an eating disorder. But, you know, I'd say, like, my main deal is that I can hide. I'm really good at hiding. I'm really good at being secretive. That is my main thing. And I just, like I said, I didn't know how to deal with life. I wanted, my whole prayer when I was growing up is I just wanted to figure out how you guys did it and just be like you. I just wanted to be like you. Well, I'm not like you. Sorry. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm ordinary. I'm as ordinary as you are. We all have the same thing. But, you know, this, this program has taught me that I have to really kind of come to terms with myself and my limitations and who I am and how to be myself, be honest in the world and not to hurt people. Because when I was young and I was very outspoken, I hurt a lot of people and I really, it wasn't my intention to hurt people, but I always made people cry because I just told the truth and I was pretty blatant about it. I mean, it's like, you know, my dad would say things, my dad would say things like, well, when we were, before elementary school, we lived in this nice little community. We were upper class, middle, upper middle class people, you know, came from that and um, they had money and, you know, they wanted to move to a bigger house and it was like my best friend was next was across the street and I didn't want to move and he didn't ask me and then he said you know many years later well we did it for you we did it so that you'd have a better life and I went no you didn't you did it for you if you'd asked me I would have said I don't want to move so you didn't do it for me so those kind of things that's kind of the way I was and I just told the truth and I wasn't trying to be malicious or whatever but you know that's how it was so you know how to come into program I would say you know I always would say my, my family is, is um, dysfunctional. Really, in the family situation, I'm the one that was dysfunctional because I couldn't fit in amongst my family. I just, I just could not. And my grandmother, um, I come from a Jewish family. We're, we're orthodox, but we don't. My, my father's mother turned Christian science when she was married, and she kicked her husband out of the house, and she's pretty... She was pretty ahead of her time, and she got into Christian science, and we were raised Christian science. Although, we didn't, we went to doctors, and we didn't practice Christian science. We just went to Sunday school, and we had to stay home, to stay home for Jewish holidays. Well, there you go. It's like, I saw that. I went, what are we doing? Like, why do we have to do this? It's, like, ridiculous. And I, I would ask, like, why do we have to stay home for this Jewish holiday? We don't go to temple. Well, because you just do. Well, why won't you tell me why? It's, like, ridiculous. Tell me at least what we're staying home for, or whatever. So, um, and then, you know, so that's how, how it went. And we started being on diets when I was, like, 12, and Metrical and a Mayo Clinic diet. We ate eggs and grapefruit, and we had this one great diet. I don't know what it was called, but we ate. We could have as much hot dogs and bacon as we wanted. And we would eat, like, at night, we would have, like, tons of hot dogs. So we lost, like, 10 pounds. But, of course, you know, then as soon as you're off it, you're... Those cookies in the cafeteria look really good, so... And then, um, I don't know, I, you know, I, I, throughout my life, you know, I've, I'm, I'm spiritually, I'm very spiritually connected. I've, ha- I've had spiritual teachers. I've had many spiritual teachers. And I, I was uh, in this class, and we were talking about something, and the guy said to me, and he said to all of us, like, you know, what would be, what would be the worst way to die? And I said, death through humil- humiliation. Being humiliated in front of a bunch of people, I think that's why I'm really scared to talk in front of a bunch of people. That's the thing for me. I just die. If I'm in a classroom and somebody says something to me that seems like 
you know, I'm not cool or whatever. It's like, oh, my God, then everybody's going to think that about me. And when I was, like I said, when I hit puberty, I gained like 40 pounds. And um, I was at camp, and I was coming out from lunch. And my sister was obese. So it's like, why did they focus on me and not her? I don't know, but I was coming out of lunch, and one guy said to me, you know, you're really fat in front of everybody. And it was like, oh, my God. It was just so horrible. And I went to my mother, and I said, okay, that's it. I'm going to a doctor. You're going to take me to a diet doctor. Of course, she's elated. She wanted a fit. She just wanted a fit. And I lost a lot of weight. But as a result of losing that weight, I was probably, I was on maintenance for about six months. You know, I've never been really overweight. I'd say, I'd say I've been maybe 25 pounds more than I am now. And I'd like to be 20 pounds less. But that's just, you know, that's me. So um, uh, as a result of this, and then, you know, I was six months maintaining, and my sister had a sweet 16, and it was all screwed around, and I lost it. And I binged so much, I couldn't, I just didn't know what to do. I couldn't breathe. And I, I um, was like thinking to myself, my God, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I went into the bathroom, I stuck my finger down my throat, and it was like, oh, my God, this is fabulous. I do not know where it came from. I told all my friends, I said, you guys, you don't have to diet anymore. You can eat whatever you want. This is what you have to do. And they all thought it was, like, crazy. And I went home to my 25th high school reunion, and uh, my girlfriend, all my friends were saying to me, do you still do that thing? And I mean, I was in recovery, thank God. So I said, well, no. And, you know, I, I got to share with them about that. But, um, you know, so it was like it was out in the open until people thought it was weird. And then I, there was some part of me that went, you better, like, really not tell anybody about this. And that is when it took off. You know, I would do this thing where I'm a really good student and I was, I was you know, A's in school and whatever. And I studied a lot and... Um, you know, it's like I would be really good during the week, and then I'd come home on the weekends, and I'd eat whatever I wanted, and I just spent the whole weekend binging and purging. And then it was like, okay, well, then I'll do it on Wednesday. And then it was every night. And then when I got, um, when I graduated high school and went off to college, it was like it just took off. You know, they say in the big book, like, you cross that, that invisible line. I crossed that invisible line. And here was somebody who was really tough and, like, could always do anything that I set myself out to do, I could do. And I had miraculous things happen to me as a child. Um, and I was stumped. It was like I thought, oh, my God, I have some kind of rare disease, which obviously I did. And and uh, I thought I was going to be, I was going to die, you know. And I would be praying to God, like, all the time, just please, like, help me out of this. It was insane. At the throes of my disease, um, I had, I'm, I'm a candy freak. I, I don't, chocolate's great, but, you know, give me candy, hard candy, because it lasts longer. And then Carmel's chewy candies, I love them, and, you know, little ones and whatever. So, you know, uh, and I carried them with me. And so I had, it was just like an addict. Like, you know, at, at my, in my bedroom at my nightstand was a bowl of M&M's. In my, in my bathroom, there was, I don't know, butterscotch candies or something. So when I got up, I ate M&M's. I went to take a shower. I had the candy there. It was insane. And, and then, you know, I worked in the restaurant business. Duh, what a great place to work if you, like, can't do that. Cause, so I, I, I worked at night, and I, um, I would, you know, get up late because I had, like, been binging until 4 o'clock in the morning. I could hardly sleep. I know that's kind of a common thing for us. And, and um, 
you know, and then I, I made sure the night before I had bought a lot of candy, and so, you know, I prepared it. If they were like Hershey's Kisses, I had to take them out of the wrappers, and I had a whole thing of them in my purse, and then I went to work. And we had a uniform. It was a short uniform, you know, and it had pockets, and the pockets were really the whole change and orders and stuff, and I had candy in them. And, I, and it was so funny. At one kitchen sink, I was sharing, and I hadn't realized it. I thought, oh, my God, it's, like, amazing. I, it never fell out. Like, if somebody had bumped me, I was like a piñata. I had it everywhere. And then, you know, and it's like, the thing with polemics, it's like, you know, oh, my God, the whole bathroom thing. You have to go into the bathroom. Nobody can be there. You have to hope you get a bathroom that, you know. And then if there were people waiting, it's like, you know, you had to flush the toilet a few times. And what were they thinking? And I, it was just insane. And I did that during my shift and, um had in my purse more candy in case it, I ran out. And, uh, and then I was, like, collecting, like, if you, it was, I worked in a lot of good restaurants, and, you know, couples come in, and they're really lovey-dovey, and they or, the, the guy wants to order really the best, and he orders the best, and she eats a bite and leaves it over, and so I, we would all, I'd take it home, and I told everybody I had a dog, and my dog was gone long ago. <laughs> <laughs> And then I'd be, I'd be, and I was a really good waitress. I, it was amazing. I don't know how I did it. I could take orders in the whole room. They loved me because everybody could leave. When we were young, and everybody wanted to party. I wanted to make money, and so everybody would leave, and I would, I'd work the whole restaurant by myself. And I never had to write the orders down until I had went to the place where I had to do it. I don't know how I did it with all of that going on with me, but it was pretty amazing. You know, it's funny when I got asked, and I, I could do less. So it was really scary, like, how am I going to work without, you know, my, my candy that gave me, like, such a high. I didn't have the ups and downs when I ate candy. When I, I could eat candy for all day and not eat meals, be fine, do a lot of work. I'd work really long hours, and I was just fine, so I thought. And um, so, you know, and then after the shift at night, after I was eating all this candy and whatever, and then I would go, the, the supermarkets were open all night. I'd go to the supermarket. I'd buy enough food for probably a family of three, steaks and whatever. And sometimes I'd steal them because I didn't have the money or I didn't want to spend the money on it. And then I would go to a Chinese restaurant and they knew me. And they said, like, I would order the stuff. Or like, and she would ask me, do you have a family? And I was like, yes, I have a husband and two kids and they're waiting for me, you know, and I was never married, and I don't have kids. <laughs> and then I would spend the whole night, you know, that 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, cooking, eating, and it's like, it was always, I'm not going to do it tomorrow, so I have to get rid of everything. And then I would eat everything, and then, of course, tomorrow came, and it was the same thing over and over and over again. And, um, you know, that went on and on and on. And then one afternoon, I think it was the 6 o'clock news, I was getting ready for work, the 4 o'clock news, you know, um, and I, I had the TV on, and there was the news on, and they were talking about Radar Institute, and this guy was working with people who were, and he called it bulimia, bulimorexia, I think it was called in the beginning, and, they, and he was studying all these people, and he showed all these young kids, and they were, he was talking about them eating, like binging and binging and binging and then purging, and I went, oh, my God, finally somebody has called it. And that was in 1980, and I called the news station, and they said, well, you know, there's really, like, nothing happening, but there are some people groups forming. And I went to, um, I went into, like, these uh, 
you know, groups of people that were run by therapists and whatever, and really all they were doing was just talking about their binging and purging. Nobody had a solution. Nobody had a solution, and it was like kind of, it was really kind of incredible when I first came and saw a whole bunch of people that were just like me, because for 20-something years I was out there on my own thinking I had this unusual disease that nobody else had, and there were all these people, and they were all talking exactly like what I was doing. It was just, it was, it was unbelievable to me. And, you know, and I, and I, and I also saw that bulimics are really beautiful. And I just, you know, like I would look at every, all these people and I'd go, you're so gorgeous. Like, what is the problem? But I could not place myself in that. I just, I, I couldn't place myself with that. But I knew that that's where I belonged. And then, um, you know, in my inventory, um, what came up for me mostly, my big pattern is, you know, I, I think that I am so bad. Like, I am such a dark spot that I don't even, I'm not even part of God. And, you know, the person I did my inventory said, he said, oh, my God, you're like the ultimate victim. You're Satan's spawn. And I started laughing. I went, oh, my God, that's, that's how I behave. I behave like I'm Satan's spawn. And so, you know, and because I was, you know, the people who are bulimic and they, they binge and purge, it's like, it is so shameful and so disgusting. Throwing up is not glamorous. It's not fun. It's really disgusting. I lived in a lot of places where I stopped up a lot of, you know, plumbing, and people had to come out with the plumbing, and then all the other people in the apartments were talking about, like, what's going on with the plumbing? And it's like, I knew what it was. It was me throwing up all that food. So um, I, I had a lot of shame, and um, I felt really awful. So, you know, in the disease, before I came into program, I would do all kinds of fasts and special kind of diets because I just felt if I could just make myself pure enough, and somehow I'd be okay. And, you know, I'm, I, I've been studying spiritually since 1969, and... Um, I've, I've worked for spiritual teachers. You know, my, my work has been in that field. And I always thought that because I was so, like, not, I was Satan spawn. I was so not part of God. If I just got close enough to somebody who was really close to God, then God would say okay. So, uh, and I, I've actually never shared this, but it's kind of funny. So I, I, I was going for colonics. Anybody knows what colonics are? And this was like back in the 1980s. And there was this big old fat woman. She was really great. She she liked to give colonics to everybody. <laughs> she gave them to dogs and she gave them to cats and she would talk about it and whatever. She was so funny, but she just really believed that, you know, getting the toxins out of your system was good for you and whatever. So there I am one day sitting on the, lying on the colonic board having colonic and she's on the phone with one of her, and she's old. She had a big bunch, gray hair. She was, short and very fat and and uh, she's talking to her friend about like OA and she's going like well we should go and whatever whatever and I'm going well this is for fat people and I didn't think that I was you know I should go or whatever but that was the first time I heard of it and then um, uh, I went and did this retreat and uh, I got very honest about my bulimia and, and that it was something that I used because when I was bulimic, I could be out there in the world and very sociable, and nobody really knew what the hell was going on with me. I didn't. I I I was hiding the truth about myself, but I was I was out there. I could go to restaurants, I could eat whatever I wanted to, and nobody could say a thing about me because I'm thin. 
it's like I have this wall around me. Like, you can't fuck with me because I'm thin, so shut up. <laughs> Look at me. Here I am. Kind of thing. And, and uh, so, you know, uh, I, I shared about it. Somebody told me about the way, and, and they took me to my first meeting in New York. And um, I'm from New York, but I was living in Dallas at the time, and I was visiting with my mother, and she came to a meeting with me. And, you know, my mom is so, like, well, you can't, in New York, you can't be out at night by yourself, and, you know, you better have money in your pocket and whatever. And in the middle of the meeting, she said, I, um, you could take a bus home, I'm leaving. She just couldn't take, she couldn't take what she heard. I know she couldn't. So, you know, that's where it started, and I came, in, I came into program in 82 when I was in Dallas, and I came to my very first meeting. It was a really small meeting. Um, it was in their intergroup. And there were maybe five people, and I shared that I was bulimic, and they said, okay, this is great. We're going to tell you who to call. And they gave me a sponsor who had been in recovery from bulimia for like seven years, and she was fantastic. It was so fucking hard. It was so hard. It was like I would eat my meal, and I would start crying because I so wanted to throw up, and I would call her up, and it was like she'd walk me through it. And then, you know, just what I told you, it was like I started to work the steps, and it was really great, and then I got into this relationship, and I was really madly in love, and he kind of seems like it's kind of a theme in my life. He started to date my best friend, and um, it was really hard for me, and, and I lost my abstinence, and I went out and decided that, you know, the program didn't really work for me, and then I moved here to California, and, you know, um, like I said, whenever I really was serious about getting abstinent, I knew that this was the place to come. And I came back to program. I heard somebody at a meeting. She told me she was in how, and that's the way she did it, and I did how for a while. And, and it was good for me because, you know, eating 24-7, I didn't know what a meal was. And so I got to see, you know, what, like, what's a portion. This is what a meal looks like and whatever. And, but the focus for me personally was too much on the weight. And, too, you know, you had to identify and say how much you'd lost. And I, I haven't lost a great amount of weight. I think I'd lost, like I said, 25 pounds. And um, so, you know, uh, I lost my abstinence because I couldn't do it perfect and I had to do it perfect. And, you know, my sponsor didn't say I had to do it perfect, but I said I had to do it perfect. And then when I lost my abstinence and nobody would talk to me, um, and then you couldn't share unless you had seven days of abstinence, it was insane. So I didn't think, nobody said to me, why don't you just go to a regular way meeting? And I just left because I said I was a failure. And, and then I went into this period of time where I decided that, okay, you know, this is my Achilles heel. You know, there are people who are spiritual and whatever who have, like, there may be alcoholics or whatever till they die, and I'm just going to be that till the day I die, and that's going to be fine with me. I'm just going to have to live with it because this isn't working for me, and, and it's just hopeless. And then I was working with this mentor, and he's really pretty amazing. And he shared this thing one night. I don't remember what we were talking about, but he was talking about his father. And, you know, he said his father was an alcoholic, and he came from a very wealthy family, and he was very sick before he died. And he went to a doctor, and his doctor said, you have to stop drinking. And then he went to another doctor for a second opinion, and they said, you have to stop drinking. And he went to another doctor until the doctor said, okay, you can keep drinking. And so, you know, um, he said, you know, you can look for somebody who's going to tell you what you want to hear or if you really want to live. And, and he was sharing about himself, and he said, you know, when I realized that was me, like if I continued my life the way it was, it's going to be like my father and I was going to die. And like maybe a few months later, that was when my mom had a stroke. 
and um, they had had a pacemaker put in, and I knew it was from anorexia because I had told my parent, I told my family, I told my mom, I told everybody, you know, she needs help. When she was 80, you know, she was really, she was like 73 pounds and whatever, and I said she's in trouble. And um, when I went home to visit her in the hospital, um, it, she was crazy. She was like saying she was fat and she was, you know, she was uncomfortable and whatever. And the nurses found her at night. This is somebody who had just had a pacemaker put in. She was like a skeleton. And she, they found her on the, crawling on the floor looking for laxatives. And I thought, oh, my God, she's a laxative abuser. And I never knew that was, that's the way it took her. And um, we had lots of conversations. It took her a long time before she died, and I really think it was her decision when she had her stroke and she couldn't talk very well, and um, she had decided that God had, you know, God was angry at her or whatever, and she didn't know what she did. And I would have lots of conversations with her. I'd say everything to her. You know, I'd say, no, you know, it's not God. You know, God wants to help you. Let him in. And I'd say, you know, you just have to eat. But she, she made a decision that took her six years to die and um, I was there I was so grateful for this program you know and for my spiritual work and it's like I, I, got, I went home and I knew she was dying so I called up my sister and I said I think I need to come home and they said I think you should no, nobody in my family talks about anything my grandmother died when I was in college and two months later I was talking to my sister and she said talking about the funeral and I went what funeral and she said well you know Nana died and I went really? nobody told me that's my family you know, um, when my, my sister, my oldest sister was uh, engaged to be married and she got pregnant and um, God, it was in the late, maybe mid-60s and she was terrified to talk to my parents and for some reason everybody confided in me because I, I don't know why, I, I didn't really have any judgment about it and I went to the doctor with her and you know, she sat down with my mother and father and the first thing out of my mother's mouth was, what am I going to tell the people at work? And I was like, oh, my God, your daughter's pregnant. You know, like, what about that? And you're having a baby, and it's really incredible, and they're getting married anyway. What's the big deal? So, you know, um, yeah, when, when I went to the, you know, I, was, I saw her in the hospital, and she couldn't talk. And when I came in, I knew that she was, there was just a vestige left, left over. And, um, okay, thanks. And, uh. You know, I got to, like, whisper in her ear and say, you know, I, she was so afraid of dying. And I just said to her, you know, there are people who love you here and there are people who love you there and they're all waiting for you. Just let go and God's going to get you and just follow the light. And she died, like, in, you know, a few hours, maybe the next morning. And uh, I was very grateful for that. This year has been unbelievable. Um, I have had so much loss in my life. And, you know, the thing about, like, losing a boyfriend is nothing compared to what I did through this year. My dad died. You know, really, I, my, having my family, my mother and father die has not been really heavy duty for me because I wasn't really close to them. Um, and I feel more it's like a freedom. But, again, I got to be with my dad <coughs> before he passed, and my sister wanted to hold on to him. He was on a ventilator, and, you know, he, he had asked not to be, and... You know, we had a meeting, and I said, you know, are you doing this for him, or are you doing this for you? And so, you know, she said, yes, it's for me, because I don't want him to go. And nobody in my family, like, would be really honest. She, she didn't really like him that much either, but I don't know, this thing about dying is, is such a thing. So, 
you know, I got to be with him when he died, and then uh, last May my dog died, and that was the hardest thing. Harder than my mother, harder than my father, harder than anybody. He was my buddy for 10 years, and he was with me all the time, and I still miss him. I still miss him. I still cry over him. And you know the good news, really, is that in program I get to feel and I get to cry. I never would cry before. No, it's okay. Everything's okay. People would say, like, are you upset? No, everything's fine. I'm just fine. And then after being in program, like maybe for two years, and I had done my inventory, and then it would be like, okay, um, anybody would ask me, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. And then like maybe a week later, I'd be, I'm really angry. And then I'd go, i think of that, like, well, what caused me to be angry? You know, something that happened a week ago. And that's the beauty of the program, the long you practice. Now it's like I pretty much can match in the moment when I'm really angry. And then I get to, like, make amends right away. I don't like it, but I do it. And, you know, making amends isn't funny either because most of the people I made amends to didn't say, yeah, me too. I was the same way. They all just said, yeah, you were really like that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I I worked for 10 years. I had a job with a... Uh, husband and wife and they were very wealthy and you know when I left it wasn't really it was really mostly because of my attitude I lost jobs because of my attitude not because of my ability to work I'm really a good worker and I really am good at what I do and uh, I don't like what I do but I'm really good at what I do and um, it was always about my attitude and then uh, I think it was two years ago the husband called me back to work because they were getting divorced and, you know, I thought about it. He was kind of abusive. And I thought about it, and I went, you know, it was really like it, I had to because I had, it was, I had the ability to make my amends, my living amends, and it changed my attitude. It was really incredible. And then I got fired from this job, and we couldn't figure out what I did wrong. It was just insane. And I just went, okay. And I even said to him, because he's a spiritual man, and I said to him, well, I don't know what is going on, and I don't know what caused this, but whatever it is, I am so sorry. Uh, if there's anything I've ever done to you now, if there's anything I've ever done to you in another lifetime, I am so sorry, and just tell me what I can do to make it right, if I can. I, I'm willing to do that. And then, you know, I got fired, and I said to him, you know, all I can see is that this must be a karmic thing, and I'm hoping it's over. So I guess it's over. <laughs> and, you know, the thing about, the thing about my wanting to hide... Um, Something that's happening this year is God keeps putting me in the forefront. So, you know, the birthday party I co-chaired with Tony, I'm going to be chairing the birthday party next year. And I'm so not, like, want to be out there. I love to be behind the scenes. I don't want to be recognized. I don't want people to know me. And I got this job for the Producers Guild. And, um, you know, I asked him. He wanted me there. He wanted me there. I told him I couldn't because it wasn't enough money, and he gave me the money that I asked for. And they're all really nice and very kind. And, um, you know, I asked him what I had to wear because I like to wear jeans and sneakers. And he goes, well, you can, you can dress casual. But and I, in the interview, I wore, like, good jeans and shoes like this and a nice top. And he goes, well, just like that, you know. He said, other people in the, in the office wear jeans and sneakers, but because of your position, we want you to dress too. And I went, oh, fuck. <laughs> I'm going to not be comfortable. I feel like I'm sucked in and whatever, but I just feel, okay, God's got a plan for me. He knows better than I do. That's the most amazing thing, you know, the relationship with God. I had a, rela- I had a relationship with God, but it was not right. It was, like, really off. 
I thought God, you know, judged. I thought he didn't like me. I thought I wasn't part of him. This journey is such an incredible journey because you have to get right with God. David says you only have two choices, only two. Either go on to the bitter end, blotting out from your mind the true nature of your malady, or accept spiritual help. That's it, two choices. I was done. When I came back to program this time, I was done. And um, this is the only house on the block for me. I love this program. No, I'm, I'm really a serious person. I'm very serious. When I came in, I was so serious. My, my, my friends used to say I used to walk with a black cloud around my head. And uh, I wanted a different sponsor, and the sponsor wouldn't sponsor me. And I went up to him one day and said, okay, I know, what, I, know I want what you have, but um, and I know you want to sponsor me, so tell me who to sponsor. And he gave me Tony. And uh, I wasn't so happy about it because he doesn't have the same kind of spiritual thing for me, but it was so perfect because it was like God wants me to have my own spiritual connection. Tony makes me laugh. And the very first time, the very first day I called him, and we, we read two pages a day in the book, we couldn't stop laughing. We go to meetings, we laugh. We probably bother everybody because we're laughing and whatever, and they think we're talking about them, and we're not. We're just laughing about ourselves. And Okay, sometimes we're laughing. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it's like to have a good time. And, you know, you would never know. The people in OA would probably never know that I'm just really serious and very quiet and want to be by myself and whatever because when I'm in these rooms, I can be myself. And that's what I'm learning. That's, I think, what God wants for me is to put that out in the world. And so I'm just going, okay, God, you know, you gave me this job. I don't want to be in a nine-to-six job. I've been freelancing for four years. I really don't, but you have some reason for me being there. For however long it will be, it will be. And we'll see what God has in store for me. I know that he has really great... That's the thing that I'm starting to learn is that God really loves me and he really wants me to have a great life. It's not maybe what I think it should be, but he wants me to be happy. That's the thing that's, you know, starting to really seep in. It's like, okay, maybe God wants me to dream. Maybe God wants me to say what makes me happy. I have, like, stopped that. I stopped dreaming dreams like so long ago everything I wanted to do according to my family wasn't good enough I was too smart enough or whatever and I you know uh, people I don't need to please people I don't I just need to be pleasing God and doing God's work and asking him to show me what's next and sometimes I have to wait sometimes I have to wait a long time I want to be married and I've never been married and I don't have relationships and I, he knows what I want. I just have to trust that if it's for me to have, then he'll give it to me when I'm ready. And if it's not, I'm going to have a good life anyway. And um, thank you so much, John, for asking me to share. Okay, anybody have a question? Yes. Uh, well, Wendy, thank you so much. It was wonderful. Wendy, I wanted to ask you when you... And you talked about the 11th step being your favorite. How, how do you practice it on, you know, as you go through your day, as you go through your Well, uh, again, I, I've, been, I've been meditating uh, since I was 20 years old, and I'm 50, whatever. <laughs> In my late 50s, okay, and so um, I've, been, I've been doing a practice for a really, really long time. So my practice is in the morning. 
you know, it's the first thing I do when I get up because uh, I want to start the day with God. And I've done a lot of different things. I've done a lot of rituals where, you know, it's like I have a little place. It's all set up. That's my place for God. And I've done that, and I've had a certain time and whatever. And, you know, well, my teacher said the only wrong way to do meditation is not to do it. You can't do it wrong. So that's really great. And I used to sit up straight and, you know, in lotus position, and I can do that. And now I, you know, sit on my bed with my back against pillows and make sure that I'm comfortable. And um, the biggest part of step 11 that's changed my meditation is that we pray only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Uh, That was what was missing. Because, you know, it was like, I guess I thought God should just give me whatever I asked for. And I was asking for it, and I wasn't getting it. And so, you know, what Wendy does is, if she isn't getting it, she takes it. So I was taking what I had to have. And, um, you know, so really that's it. And, you know, I I call it a spiritual muscle, just like physical exercise. You know, you can't start out lifting 20, 40, 50 pounds of weight. So, you know, I started out doing short amount of time. You know, you could start out at one minute, you could start out at two minutes, and then you build up from there. It's building a muscle, and then you get to sit for a while. And I sit for, I sit for a long time. And, um, yeah, so um, just remembering to, you know, ask for his, the knowledge of his will and what is it he wants me to do today. And I may have a long list of things to do, and pretty much it never works out according to my list. Something always comes in. And then, you know, because I built that muscle when things go on during the day, I know how to pray, and I know how to ask for help, and I know how to, when I'm off the beam, and I know how to, like, oops, I just yelled at somebody. I better find out what, what I just did and tell them that I'm sorry. And I don't like it, and I do it. So that's my eleventh step. Thank you. Okay. One quick one. <laughs> Okay. Well, my abstinence is the thing that I never have, and that's um, it's changed over time. I used to have an abstinence list that was like five pages long of what I couldn't do, what I couldn't eat, where I couldn't go, when I could do it, when I could have it, all that kind of crap. And one day I was sitting in my living room thinking about another thing that I was going to give up, and there was this voice that said, you know, I'm not asking you to give this up. This is you. And I went, oh, my God, I'm still controlling it. And so today my abstinence is um, no sugar, no refined flour, no refined food products at all. I pretty basically eat whole foods. It's vegetables, fruit, protein, and whole grains. And I do eat grains. I love grains. I think they're important. And um, my food plan, as we like to call it, is that I eat when I'm hungry, I stop when I'm satisfied, and I eat what I want within those framework, within that framework. And really what that is for me, I mean, I've told people that, and they go, how can you do that? That's insane. Really what it means is I don't have to eat if I'm not hungry. That's basically it. So if it's time for a meal and I'm not hungry, I can go, okay, I don't have to eat, because that sets off my bulimia. And um, I don't have, you know, having doing how, it's like, I sometimes don't want protein at every meal. Sometimes I just want a bowl of brown rice, or sometimes I want a hamburger, you know, so... It's like when I want it, when I when I'm hungry, I get to have what I want. You know, it doesn't happen all the time because sometimes I'm not in the right circumstances, but I do the best I can. Thank you very much.